Good morning. Sometimes I wonder if in the future one day I'll be driving down one of these county roads listening to my Christian radio in my pickup truck and there comes a song from somebody that was raised in this church. We have some incredible musical talent. We are very blessed here. And I thank you, all of you that participate in that and minister to us in that way. To God be the glory. Glory goes to the rock of ages. We are in the book of uh, Revelation. We've been there for a while and we'll be there for a while yet. We are in chapter 9, almost halfway. And we're working through the three woes. The book of Revelation is filled with woes. And we're working through the three woes that were pronounced by an eagle in chapter 8, verse 13. The first woe that the eagle gave unleashed satanic powers upon the earth. And it specifically attacked, these demonic powers attacked what Revelation calls the earth dwellers. So it's a phrase there that describes those on the earth that refuse to believe in God. They love the world. They love the things of the world. They love this earth. They're not interested in spiritual divine things or God. This is where they have planted themselves, and this is where they want to remain. They're not sealed by God. They're not cared for by God. They're not owned by God. And after looking at the first 12 verses in Revelation 9 at more unleashing of judgment, you're constantly left thinking to yourself, how could things get any worse? I mean, it's it's one calamity after another. And you read this, this demonic power and devastation and loss of life, and you think, surely that's got to be it. And yet, the book of Revelation is written in such a way that we read chapter after chapter, passage after passage, and, and we are left thinking, surely, what could come after that? What could be next? And there's always something next. Like there's another judgment to come and yet another one to be pronounced. And there's more angelic activity and there's more destruction on the earth. That's the way it's written. It's purposely written to get our attention in that way. And that's because, frankly, evil must be judged. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about the judging of evil and the exaltation of holiness and God and His people. But evil has to be judged. Evil must be stopped and God will do that. And God is doing that. He is judging evil. He is judging rebels. But evil persistently grows unless it is stopped. If it's just left unchecked, that by its very nature, it's ravenous, it's destructive, just like the locusts that were described in Revelation. They come to an area of vegetation. They don't just like eat the ripest leaves or part of it. They devastate it. And it's a great metaphor for the very nature of what evil does. Evil's never satisfied. It wants more and more and more. And that's why Scripture warns us not to mess with it, not to play with it. Don't touch it. Because it always wants to draw us in and get us. And then it's the carrot at the end of the stick. And it's never, ever enough. And yet, it is, it, if we seek it, 
and we follow its promises, we are left empty. Evil is a tremendous poison, and so revelation takes care of that. And that's why we see these wraths and these, the judgment of God. He will bring it to an end, and He is bringing it to an end. As we live our days, it's all the plan of God, it's the plan of redemption. He set it in motion before the foundation of the world, and we get to witness it, we get to participate in it on one side or the other. So, we see one calamity after other. We, we had the, the seven seals and those judgments. And now we're on trumpet blast number six and the judgments that follow that. And then after that, I believe it's in chapter 14, things shift a little bit between here and there. And then chapter 14, we see another series of calamities in the wraths of the bowls, the seven bowls. Well, in this chapter... John is describing a war like one we've never seen or experienced. And one reason it is so intense, we will see, is because people's hearts are so intent in not giving God glory. There's a tension here. It's, It's a tremendous tension where the wrath comes and yet a heart is just hardened even more. And if you can believe it, we will see that even though these wraths come, even though people die, it's a part of life and they witness it. And the understanding is that it's clear where this is coming from. It's clear what the purpose is. It's God speaking to humanity. It's God getting our attention. There's still a a big talk to the hand. I don't want anything to do with you. If you can believe it. So... That's why it gets so intense and and the power of God is unleashed upon darkness and the power of God is unleashed in the darkness. It's God's judgment on a world that snubbed their creator. So with that, I want to just kind of pick up with the words we left with last time, verse 12, and then venture into our text in Revelation 9, 13 through 21. But verse 12 said, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Thirteen, uh, Verse 13. The sixth, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur come out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. 
verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. I want to break this into three parts here and look at the voice and the vision, what John hears, what John sees, and then um, the refusal or the recalcitrance or the, uh, the rebellion of the people that we will look at in verse 20. So first of all, the, the voice, John's, he, he, um, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and these are all things that John hears. He hears a voice from the four horns, from the four horns uh, at, of the altar from God. And the angels that have been prepared by God are released upon this command from the throne room of heaven. He's given an order by this voice. The voice comes and represents the presence of God. It's interesting that John doesn't identify the voice, and I heard the voice of God. He just says a voice from the altar. There's an interesting, uh, there are some interesting thoughts behind this in Jewish tradition. Some Jewish tradition teaches that actually we, we, God never really speaks to us. He always uses angels as his spokesperson. And there's a lot of evidence for that where you can kind of track it through Scripture and you see, well, that was the angel of the Lord or, or an angel said this and it wasn't actually the Lord. And it's an interesting thought. But I think there's also places where God speaks directly to us. And, even, and in this text, we have an example of the voices coming from this altar, the four thrones, well, all in Scripture, that represents God. That represents the presence of God. It's the altar there or the Ark of the Covenant where uh, the, blood, the atoning blood is. That's where God dwells with His people. So I see this as the voice of God coming and directly speaking to these angels. And we see that because that's the presence of the God. Nevertheless, when we have a command here coming from the throne room of God, you know that it's going to transpire. You know what angels do in heaven. They obey the voice and the command of God that comes from the throne room. And the command is to release the four angels that have been positioned and have been preserved at the river Euphrates. That's where they've been stationed in God's plan, the great river. Previously, God spoke to four other angels that were positioned at the four corners of the earth. And we talked about that. These are different angels. They're not the same angels. But there's no question here who's in charge of all things and all creatures. The question, I think, is are these angels, or a good question to ask is, are these angels that have been bound, are they good or bad? Because there are good angels and there are evil angels in the world. And I think the fact that they're bound, they're restrained for the time for God to release, so it's this idea that they're kind of caged, but God releases them, shows that they're bad angels. We also find something similar in Jude 5 and 6. Where he says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, 
that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So you get this idea that there are some angels. Of course, God is sovereign. He uses all things for His glory, His good, and His purpose as we, we sang many times today in our songs. God, uh, there are angels that are so evil or bent on evil that they get time out, so to speak. You know, they get placed and set in the corner until God has a purpose for them. They're locked up and they're only released when God says it's time. And then they're put back on the playing field to serve His purpose. So there are things, there, there are evil things and evil creatures and events and calamities that are not unleashed and do not take place because God has bound them. Because it's not time for that to happen. In this case, they are released and one-third of humanity dies. Another curious question to ask in here is, why the river? Why the great river Euphrates? That term is it's kind of an idiom. It means something to the Jewish people. It, 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 it takes on a, a meaning in the Old Testament when you talk about the river. It's mentioned several times because it marks the boundary line of the promised land. So when you talk about the river Euphrates, it's this defining mark. We use rivers, and well, everybody in the, in the world does, but in our country, in our state, we use rivers frequently as boundary markers. And whenever I head up north to see my family, I take I-95 at a creeping pace around Fredericksburg and Washington. But when you cross the Potomac, you leave Virginia and you are welcome to the state of Maryland. It is a property marker. And the river Euphrates is also looked, uh, looked upon in those terms. It's, it's a boundary. And from this river back is where you've been delivered from that. You don't want to go back to that. That represents evil. It represents uh, oppression. It represents idolatry and rebellion against God. But from this point forward, you are in the promised land, so to speak. You're in the presence of God. You're a part of the people of God. And you experience the goodness of God. So... The, the river Euphrates, in a, in a sense, it's an ending point and a beginning point. It's that kind of boundary marker here. So the land God promised to His people wasn't completely realized until the days of Solomon. But these boundaries carried with them uh, expectations. If you cross this boundary and you go across the river, then you can expect bad things to happen because that's not the land that God has given you where you can flourish and avoid the evil things that take place there. So in our, in our passage, it symbolizes um, the boundary between good and evil. There are boundaries. There are physical boundaries, but there are spiritual boundaries. 
There are geographical places that we shouldn't go, but there are spiritual places we shouldn't go, whether it's in our mind or in our hearts, our thought, our desires. And so this marks a a definitive place or beginning and end of different kinds of kingdom of light and darkness. I like how Psalm 72, 8 through 11, draws from this. It puts it... uh, in regarding to the sovereign reign of Christ. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him and isn't that interesting because Christ rules all over everything but it's like his 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 reign starts at the river and goes this direction it doesn't go that way that's understood there as the the river um, Euphrates so it's generic here there. it's a distinct line it's a good reminder I think as I think about this passage about how God sets boundaries for His people geographically. But we know in our own lives that we have places, boundaries, where we've been taught or we know by experience we have no business crossing that. It's the other side of the tracks, so to speak. That, that's, where, that's where crime happens or that's where paganism is rampant. That's where idolatry or those people, they have nothing to do with Christ or that area, there's something about it. And I think we have boundaries in our lives. I know I do. I know I have buttons, boundary buttons that I shouldn't push. I know that I have places that I shouldn't go, whether it's geographically, spiritually, or in my own mind. And these are put there for our good. They're put there as defining markers between when you leave this place, you're in danger, but you can expect the, the favor or the blessing and the work of God here, but when you, when you leave that behind. You know, it reminds me a lot of what we read in the news these days or see on TV. And we live, we're Americans, and so as Americans, we have certain and really distinct privileges and honors and freedoms, and we're treated in a certain way. And I don't know that a month goes by where you don't hear of some citizen they got lost or they went off course or they detained or they committed a crime in another country and they are crying to their politicians, get me back. I want to come back. They went across the border, so to speak, and you don't have the same freedoms or the same privileges or the same protections. You're not treated the same way when you cross a certain border. And we need to know that. And it plays in our spiritual lives as well. So where, where, what does God bring to your mind as, as His Word goes forth? What boundaries we know that we're not supposed to cross because you can just expect something to happen. We're not going to be treated the same way when we do that. We have that even here in the Revelation in the end times. When I was a child, my parents set boundaries for me. I'm sure you set boundaries for your kids. Uh, before I was old enough and I could just walk or crawl, I had boundaries. Even before I could walk. Then when I got a bike and I could go faster and farther, quicker, I had more boundaries, you know. I could go here and here and here, but uh-uh, 
now that you're able to go that far, you can't. doesn't mean you can. Why so many boundaries? Well, it's for our protection. It is a demonstration of love. It's care. And so there's a sense here in which everything starts from the river and goes this direction. And that's where we want to start. We want to start from here. When we come to Christ, we leave things behind. We put those off and we take on the new things. And we don't want to be going hopping back and forth. How are you going to get anywhere? How are you going to grow in our knowledge of Christ? The Bible's filled with spiritual boundaries between good and evil. And we have to make the decision to choose the good. Can't resist, but when I'm thinking about having to make the decision between what's clearly the right thing to do and what's clearly dangerous is one of the Geico commercials. And you have this horror movie figure, creature, chasing a group of kind of teenagers or young adults. And of course, it's dark. It's the whole horror movie theme. And he's coming after them and they're, they're faced with constant choices. So he's chasing them. He's got some weapon or something, maybe an axe in his hand. I can't remember exactly. So they have this choice. Well, in one scene, you have this car. It's already started. It's right there. They could just jump in it. They don't even have to start it. They can jump in and escape. Or they can run into the shed with lots of chainsaws. And so what do they do? How about the car? No, let's go to the shed. So they go to the shed, and there he is, and the creature's following them, and they have these choices. You know, shoot, let's go to the cemetery. You don't want to go to the cemetery when you're, when you're scared. Let's go into the basement. Let's go into this abandoned house. So where do we go for safety between our choices? You know, we have these kind of choices. And it's so funny in a commercial, but, you know, we're faced with those same things every day. Hey, let's do this. That's a dumb idea. That's a dumb idea. It's not smart. It's dangerous. It's creepy. It's dark. And what do you expect to happen if we're going to cross these kind of boundaries in our lives? Evil lurks. Don't cross the wrong river in the wrong direction. So God commands these four angels at this river to be turned loose. Another question comes to mind as you picture them turn loose. Is, well, how, why were they bound in the first place? Well, of course they were they're too evil. You know, they, they, were, they couldn't behave themselves. And so God just chained them, bound them, however he does that, until he has use for them. But it's a little deeper than that. Because I think what it tells us is that there are times that God does bring peace. He does bring light. There's not calamity, there's not war, there's not dissension. Because those things are held back by the sovereign power of God. And if you, if you connect that idea with the plan of God to spread the gospel throughout the world, I think what you have is there are, there are seasons, there are ages, error, there, there are places, geographical places, where God holds back evil and darkness and resistance to the gospel, I would say, so that the gospel can suddenly go places where it's never gone before. Now, this is something else we get to see. We see this in our lifetime. Now, there's times where 
we, we're, we're told to preach the gospel in season, out of season. We're told to bring it, whether people are receptive to it or not. And so we have you know, smuggling of Bibles. We have uh, people kind of sneaking into places with the gospel, and they're not supposed to. But there are other times where God just opens a door. Now, there are tremendous opportunities, even in the Middle East, where doors were, were closed so tightly because there are, well, there are people that fear the gospel. There are people that fear the Bible. They want nothing to do with it because they see how it changes people's lives and it requires you to change your gods. It requires you to worship the one true God. But God restrains things so the gospel can be preached so that people can hear it so that the kingdom of God can go forth. It's, it's all a part of His redemptive plan. So it goes forth in the darkness, but it also goes forth in times that are favorable to peoples. And it's granted by God. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we see this. We see this throughout the age of the church. The gospel will be preached. And in order for this to happen, right? Uh, just like the Red Sea, uh, things have to be parted so that God's plan or God's people can get where they need to go for His glory and His purpose. So these obstacles, those impossible obstacles of oceans or whatever it is and waters are removed. So the plan of God takes place. But on this earth, evil is glad to oppose God. Delights in opposing God. Lives to or exists to oppose God. Right after Matthew 24, 14, we read this in 21, then there will be great tribulation. This is Jesus speaking. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if these... Those days had not been cut short. No human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. I love that because it, all of the world events in some way as confusing and complicated and fast-paced as they are have something to do with God's people, God's elect. Like God, we, 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 sometimes we, we forget that there are other moving parts in the world because you see these politicians and presidents and kings and all these powers and armies. God moves, and He moves His people, and He's doing things. It's, it's really the work of God that's happening here. And there are calamities that are held back or stopped short, He says, for the sake of the elect. That's because that's my people. I have a plan for them. So I'm, I'm blowing the whistle on the play over here until my people get where I want them to be. And then the sea can collapse back in on itself and be what it may. So verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number four, of course, we learned last time with the other angels, it symbolizes covering the whole area. So like you had the four angels in the corners of the earth that meant the whole earth was affected and that's the idea here with its impact. 
It will signify the whole universe will be impacted by this war and a third of the inhabitants will perish here. And whereas previously plagues, they impacted creation, this one, interestingly enough, is uh, demonic powers, evil powers, evil armies, what? Annihilating evil people. Annihilating people that do not believe in God. That's this war here. It's, it's um, the godless against the godless. The evil against the evil. And what happens in the movies, it, it reminds me of the movies again, sorry, but you know, we're the movie generation, right? We've got the TV. You don't even have to go to the theater anymore. So in movies, whenever you have a prison scene, and something's going on, whether it's Mission Impossible, whatever. But you have something going on and all the prison doors open. And all of a sudden those prisoners are like... And they get out. And they're free. At least free out of their little cell. And what do they do every time, at least in the movies? They don't like sit down and play cards and pat each other. Oh, so good to see. They fight each other. It's like evil against evil. And it's been restrained in the cell. But now, mayhem is unleashed. It's like, it's that same thing. It's the ungodly against the ungodly. And these things happen here. It's happening here in this scene only because it's the absolute perfect timing from God. God has impeccable timing. The hour has come. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples? Not yet. The hour has not come. So God is, everything is on this timeline under the sovereign hand of God. And in this case, they're referred to as the mounted troops, the cavalry. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, John says. He hasn't seen anything yet. He's hearing things, this number. Uh, 200 million, that's a lot. 200 million soldiers. So just for gee whiz. So I was thinking, wow, that sounds like a lot. What does that mean in, in our day or in our terms? Gee whiz, the United States in, in 2022, by the way, uh, is the world's third largest army in the terms of manpower with about 1.4 million active military personnel. This is 200 million here. I know it's all symbolic, but it's a lot of people. It's a lot of war taking place. Second, the vision in 17 through 19. He begins to see things. The mounted troops. I don't hear the number. Now he sees the color of the breastplates. And they're fiery red, bluish, sulfur, uh, sapphire and sulfur. The idea here, what you see is fire, smoke, and sulfur kind of representing the stench. And so fire takes on meaning. It's the same thing with the heads of the horses, not just the colored breastplates. They also, out of their mouths come fire, smoke, and this, the stench of burning here. Kind of like what we would read in stories about the fire-breathing dragons. You know, it's all that smoke and the fire and the destruction. And fire symbolizes in the Old Testament... Devastation, devastation of war. A lot of times if you were invaded by another country, they would burn your city. They'd burn you too. They'd burn everything that you built down. It's a sign of dominance to keep you down, keep you under their rule. 
And so it's, it's a mark of devastation. And of course, when you have that, you have the smoke. And, it's a, and it blurs your vision. It's bluish out there. You can't see. And then you also have the way it affects your, uh, your breathing and, and your nostrils. And it's a, a stench there. And it's a burning so things have a tendency to get consumed in that way. I think of Sodom and Gomorrah when God sends the fire and the brimstone. It's the same thing in the, in the sulfur there. You have fire, you have smoke, and you have the stench and the burning all representing the destruction here. These creatures that John describes, of course all symbolically, don't expect to see them pop up one day, but they're dangerous from both ends, so to speak. They have their heads and their tails in both directions, and they're very uh, formidable in that sense. So basically, if you, if you put all this together and you think, well, how do I make sense out of all this? Simply put, these, these are demonic forces. These are armies. It will be played out in, in some capacity of real life where people will see it and suffer from it. And behind these armies, behind these forces, whatever kind of weaponry or devastation there is, God has given authority for this to take place in, in the form of warlike plague, and it will inflict tremendous harm on humanity. And then last, we see the refusal. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. So though all this comes, we have those that refuse. They just dig in deeper and refuse to worship God. They, it's an extreme refusal to repent and it's not because they weren't warned. It's not because they didn't have enough time to really think about what was going on and repent. It's because they simply knew what was going on and refused to worship God. Reminds me way back in verse 2, in verse 21, when Jesus was speaking to the churches. He said, I gave her time to repent, speaking about Jezebel. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. God, as much as He hates evil, actually gives us time to repent of it. Gives us time. What a gift of grace. Doesn't cut it right away sometimes. As much as He hates it, He gives time so that we can understand and, and in the difference between darkness and light and embrace God for who He really is. There's a time there that is granted. We know that to repent literally means to change directions. You were going this way and now you're going that way. God gives us time for that. But when we do that, it requires giving things up. It requires a cutoff. It requires a change, a change of thinking, a change of what we love, a change of what we obey. Who's the authority in our life, in our lives now? So in this case, they continue to worship their false idols. The scripture cracks me up all the time with false idols because um, 
humanity loves them as, and worships, worships them as if they're real, kind of like a child with their baby doll and talking through them and putting them to bed and all this kind of thing. And you give them a little fake bottle. That's what it is. That's what idolatry worship is. It's fake. It's something that's man-made. And Scripture always said, by the way, it can't talk. Your statue, your shape, your, your, car, your cray, um, carbon image, it can't, it can't reciprocate. It's not going to talk back to you. It's not going to interact with you in any way. It's fake. You made it. He went out into the woods, I think Jeremiah says, you got a stick and you carved it into something, and now you carved it into something you want it to be, but it's not that. It's a stick of wood, it's a rock, it's, it's metal. That's all it is, and it's all it ever will be. And even in Revelation, we see that here kind of cracks me up. They're not real. So we, we, we fashion things. We want certain things to, to service in a way, and really... When it gets down to it, we're trying to fashion a God in our own image. We're trying to make something that will finally give us what we want. Maybe I can make something and pray to it enough and devote myself enough or cut myself enough as they did in the Old Testament. Make all these sacrifices to something that's fake and man-made. Then maybe I can get what I want. You see how evil and twisted and deceptive that is? You see how pitiful we are without the light of Christ that we would do that? And insist on doing it, though God gives us time to repent here. Things that can't walk. It's a one-sided relationship that only ends in hell. And you think, well, I don't have any idols in my house. Well, idols are things that we devote ourselves to, we look to, and we put them in the place of God. I think uh, Americans have plenty of idols. You throw, throw $100 bills out into the public and see how people act. You know, in our culture, we say money talks. Does it? I've never heard anything of numismatic value say a word to me. But it does talk in the sense of what? Well, there's power behind it. How is there power behind it? Because of the way we worship it. Because of the way we revere it. Now, it has a place, obviously. But it can also become an idol. It's, not, it's, it's something we made. Paper, coin, whatever. We fashioned it. And we gave it a certain amount of worth. And if you keep it at that, that's okay. But when you give it more worth, then it begins to take over. And we start looking at money as that's how I get what I want in life. It takes the place of God. In Scripture... Uh, worshiping an idol is tantamount, tantamount to worshiping Satan. Because Satan is behind all of the deception. Behind all of the empty promises. And so, Scripture just puts it like it is. By the way, if you're doing that, you're worshiping Satan. Because Satan is behind all of this. 1 Corinthians 10, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. The Apostle Paul is teaching believers what's behind the idol worship in their culture. Deuteronomy, and within the Song of Moses, we read this about the people of God. They stirred him to jealousy with strange, strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. 
They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. It's demonic. And the Bible calls it for what it is. And if it doesn't listen to us and it's not interactive, how can we expect an idol to truly bless us? And if the devil's behind it, how in the world can we expect to find the favor that we would really desire in life and the blessing that we... Does the enemy desire to cause us to flourish and bless us in the things that are right and good? It's all trickery and deception to lead us in the darkness. Lots of opportunities to get in that running car or to go, let's just hide in the cemetery. Idol worship. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It's, this is not innocent, passive refusal. It's active, purposeful refusal. I'm doing life my way. You're not going to be a part of it, God. They violate everything that's good. They cross the river, the boundary, go deep into the kingdom of darkness and stay there. And by refusing to repent, they are accountable to God. They refuse the only offer or window or way of escape, the atoning blood for forgiveness. They have no one to blame but themselves. God holds them accountable. They say, this is my story, this is my life, and I'm sticking to it. And they stick to it to the very end. If you turn that scenario around, you have those in Revelation that are just bound and determined to stick to the life they want, to what they believe. And yet, that's what God calls Christians to do, right? And that's why we have Christian martyrs, because we have those that say, no, this is the story, it's God's story, my life is God, and I refuse to repent of that. And so if I have to die, or if I have to suffer for it, so be it. I will take this story to the grave with me because this is what is true. It's the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And I will take that truth and I will worship God to the very end. So we see in in closing, if we make a, a broad application and just reflect on this passage, that there are things that happen in this world and there are things that don't happen. And that's for the redemptive plan and purpose for God. And God has an eye on His children. And God is very active in our lives and the lives of local churches just like this around the globe. Because of His hand on believers. So in a generic way, our lives are filled with providential signs and rivers, if you will. God gives us opportunity. He gives us time. He makes things clear to us. There are things in our lives where we know what we should do and we know that we should not do. And what kind of people will we be? Today, we have a choice. Am I going to run back to the shed with chainsaws? Or am I going to get in a car that's running that can really get me out of this place? God gives us so many opportunities to make these choices 
to love Him and worship Him and share the good news. He can put us in strategic places to share the good news with those and not everybody's going to care for it and not everybody's going to listen, but it's still good news and they still need to hear it. So this is what we do until the end and may God give us uh, this kingdom outpost, if you will, that builds on the rock, the grace and the fortitude to hold the fort to protect the truth and long for the coming of the King. May God bless the preaching of His Word.